Thank you for your warm welcome. And uh, as we think about that psalm, uh, I wonder if there's um, anybody in the Bible narrative that you uh, ever feel sorry for. Job? Peter? Saul? Right, yeah. So there's a few people, isn't there? And, uh, and, and this psalm is one that strikes me as well. We're leading up to Easter uh, here at Mosaic, thinking about some of the psalms, um, partially because they are um, songs and prayers that Jesus uh, used and prayed and knew, um, I was never a Baptist when we had when we used hymn books. Um, I, I suppose my last experiences of hymn books were in the Methodist Church and then the Uniting Church with the uh, uh, the hymn books. And so every Sunday there would be a you know, I'd make a selection of um, of songs from the hymn book, and um, the Psalms are a bit like our modern hymn books too um, songs of praise songs of thanksgiving and uh, adoration and um, songs of encouragement they're not all directly prayers to God sometimes they're, they're, they're words of encouragement to us as individuals um, sometimes they're words of instruction um, but there's also quite a few uh, cries to God for help uh, or there's a t- technical term called lament um, and uh, I'm as Jesus' death approached and we're leading up to Easter and we're in the middle of Lent, how long is Lent? Said my mother once. <laughs> she d- d- decided to forego tea for Lent. And, uh, and um, uh, I'd just gone to theological college and my mum came and visited and she said, Jim, how long is Lent? <laughs> So these, these psalms of lament uh, were on Jesus' lips in, on the cross. Um, psalm 22, verses 1 and 15, Psalm 31, 5, and Psalm 69, 29, uh, 21 were all quoted by Jesus on the cross. And today's psalm is uh, by a chap called Heman. 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 Sounds a bit like one of Maytel's action figure dolls that maybe Barbie would have had a crush on at one time. <laughs> uh, Heman was uh, the grandson of Samuel, uh, who was the final judge of Israel and the, the man who anointed Saul and David into their kingships. And um, Heman has listed one of the three main musicians appointed by David Um, and uh, for the ministry of prophesying accompanied by harps, lyres and cymbals. And so Heman was likely both a musician and a songwriter, and it seems that he was still serving even up until the time of King Solomon Um, because um, Solomon, the wisest man of all, was compared to him. And it says in 1 Kings 4.31... Um, 
Solomon was wiser than anyone else, including Ethan the Ezraite, and wiser than Hermon. So Heman served as a Levite and a seer and songwriter, um, and he was a godly father as well, um, and a man of influence during the times of David and Solomon. And today, his only song, uh, or remaining song that we know of, is this psalm. And, uh, and it's the depth of his cry and his longing uh, as he approaches God in the depths of, of, of some sort of misery that uh, makes me feel sorry for him. Although sometimes I wonder if perhaps we should be sorry for his wife because 14 sons and three daughters. So from the biblical record, it looks like Heman had a long and fruitful life. And so I wonder what caused him to write this song. Was it out of his own experience? Death, despair, no friends, all sorts of things. Um, Perhaps, however... Like a songwriter, like a modern songwriter, you don't always write a song directly out of your own experience. Maybe you try and encapsulate something uh, of the experiences of of people around you. And uh, perhaps as the songwriter for King David, he tried to encapsulate something of what David had told him, no doubt, uh, about the times of misery while he was running from uh, King Saul um, um, in... uh, same Psalm 57 is about that, uh, when he was later uh, pursued by his son Absalom. Uh, psalm 3 is one about that. And both those psalms are also laments. And, um, but what is different about Psalm 88 in, is that there is no actual resolution or uh, response to the cry. The other psalms have some expression of confidence of, in God's rescue, or, um, or, that, or thanksgiving for a rescue that was performed. And um, here, in this psalm, we don't find very much at all uh, there's, in, by way of expressions of faith. Maybe the first verse is about all that we can say is that the, the song addresses Yahweh as God of my salvation. Really, you could summarise the rest of the psalm as God is the God of my salvation. Moan, 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 and more moaning. So I think what we have here is uh, really what we go through, each one of us, while we're waiting for an answer. When we go through that waiting time, in the time between when our troubles begin and we can say we have seen an answer, that time perhaps when we face a blank wall. C.S. Lewis lost his wife Helen in 1960 after only three years of marriage. And he wrote a slim book called A Grief Observed. And it's always stood in my mind, that book. I've known it for years. And in in it he says, Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting disquieting symptoms. 
When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed though once. And that seeming was as strong as this. And what can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? A little later in the book, after some time has passed, he writes, I've gradually come to feel that the door is no longer shut and bolted. Was it my own frantic need that slammed it in my face? The time when there is nothing at all in your soul except a cry for help may be just the time when God can't give it. You're like a drowning man who can't be helped because he clutches and grabs. Perhaps your own reiterated cries deafen you to the voice you hoped to hear. On the other hand, knock and it shall be opened. But does knocking mean hammering and kicking the door like a maniac? And there's also, to him that hath shall be given. After all, you must have a capacity to receive, or even omnipotence can't give. Perhaps your own passion temporarily destroys the capacity. There have been occasions in my life, and there still are some situations where I face a blank wall. Answers are slow, seemingly non-existent. And we all have those experiences. As I was preparing for this, I shared with a few people and everybody seemed to be able to think of a time when there is no answer to prayer. And yet, with Herman... I have come to believe that Yahweh is the God of my salvation. And I have decided that I will trust him no matter what. Sometimes there may be no obvious answer, or at least no answer in the way that we would like. And what then? We shared it with Psalm 1 the other week and there is a, an images of two sorts of people. One with the mockers who say there is no God and there are the other people who delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. Who do we choose? I choose to take heart with Paul's encouragement to the Ephesians when he says in Ephesians 6 uh, verse 13 
Therefore put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Standing can sometimes be difficult. And I have family, and I have friends, who have given up on God out of experiences of pain and loss. There was something in their experience that meant they failed to stand. Some of them were newish Christians. Maybe they didn't have a full experience of God. So they approach a relationship with God much as a lot of modern people seem to approach marriage for as long as love shall last rather than till death us do part. Lewis says elsewhere in his book, not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but, so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. For many people, both options have the same outcome. There is no God or he is not worth believing in and so I will not trust and worship him. But I have decided that I will stand. And if we're going to stand, how? Well, the following verses in, uh, in Ephesians that uh, Paul wrote give us some hints on how to stand. Uh, verse 14 starts off, uh, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. What does the belt of truth mean? The first and what must always be the starting point is that the truth we believe is God's truth. It is believing, as the scriptures say, that Jesus is Lord and Saviour and that he cares for us even when we can't see it. And the second point behind the belt of truth is that we must live truthful lives the belt kept the tunic in place uh, and, uh, and that the tunic, of course, keeps a person covered and uh, dignified. In the same way, lies will uh, expose you and strip away your dignity and there is no dignity in sin. The belt of truth means that we live honestly, with integrity and without hypocrisy. And when we walk with integrity and uh, we're utilising the belt of truth, when we quit playing games and walk consistently, whether people see us or not, then we're using the belt of truth. And then the second half of that verse 14 is with the best breastplate of righteousness in place. The breastplate of righteousness is essential for the Christian to avoid a mortal wound in our chest or our stomach. And what is righteousness? Righteousness is being moral and just and pure in heart. Uh, 
are we moral and just and pure in heart? Isaiah uh, in 64.6 likens our righteousness to filthy rags. Our own righteousness isn't sufficient to save us and it never will be sufficient. On our own we could never become righteous in God's sight which is why we need Jesus. If we wear the breastplate of righteousness it means our relationship with God is solid and protected. It will be trusting and dependent on God. We will recognise that God is God and that we are not. Sometimes God's answers are out of the, the grace and his perfect knowledge. Verse 15, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. We're also called to stand firm. And the, uh, the shoes of the gospel of peace think footy boots with spikes. The Roman soldiers, um, they had basically the the equivalent of footy boots with spikes. Enabled them to stand on slippery ground with the spikes. And the gospel is where we get our traction to fight and defend. It is the gospel of peace which enables us to stand firm. We can stand secure knowing that we have peace. Not only do we have peace with God, because God is not against us, he is 100% for us but we also experience the peace of God. This means we experience his peace even in the most trying of circumstances. And the peace of God enables us to have that calm, assured confidence that enables us to handle any situation. And so when trying circumstances come and we face the blank wall, knowing that Jesus gives us good footing on which to stand. The peace of God helps us to get a good grip. Have you experienced the power of God's peace? In verse 16, it continues all, in addition to this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. When do we have the most trouble extinguishing the flames of the, uh, of the flaming arrows of the enemy? It's when our shield is down and when our faith is lacking, when we're in the midst of doubts about God and the world. Not only do we struggle with doubts regarding our faith, but we also question sometimes ourselves and our faith. We question others as well. And yet Paul tells us it's our faith which sustains us so that we can repel the arrows of the enemy with our shield of faith. This shield is what protects us. And when we say we have faith in someone, we're really saying that we believe in them and we trust them. And the same is true about our relationship with God. The shield of faith is a shield of trust and belief and confidence in the God of our salvation.
So we're to put our trust in the Lord, believing in God to take care of our every need. We have faith that no matter what happens to us, God will be there. He doesn't abandon us, but he promises to be with us through any and every storm of life, even when we can't see him. There's the great um, poem about the footprints in the sand, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, I saw a slight version of it. Um, there's the pair of footprints and there's a dra- drag mark. <laughs> and uh, Verse 17, take the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation gives us confidence in Christ, just as um, the, the helmet, when we put it on, makes us feel a bit more invulnerable, doesn't it? (laughs) Um, I'm only alive today because of a helmet. Um, I was uh, racing a car and I stuffed it sideways into a concrete wall at about 70 miles an hour and um, a few days later when I finally got um, out, out of hospital and got to see the remains of the vehicle and I'd taken my helmet off and put it down on the, head, on the seat and I picked up the helmet and looked on the side and on, across the back of the head there it was dented about that deep into the helmet and, um, and I'd hit the diagonal roll cage with my, hel- with my head and if I hadn't had the helmet on my head would have been probably cut off like a boiled egg So the helmet of salvation gives us confidence. We've been saved by what Christ did for us on the cross. No one can take that away. The helmet of salvation protects our minds from the attacks of the enemy. Luther uh, was said to um, throw an ink pot at the devil uh, with, in a sense, the helmet of salvation. He... um, was writing these theses and he apparently was being tempted and he threw an ink pot <laughs> what he imagined was the devil and said I am baptized there's that firmness and the decision that is so important and then that verse it also says and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2:15 to Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. How many of us can accurately handle the word of God? And if you're going to be victorious, you need to know the word of God. And that's why I think so many new Christians slip away. because It's before they've had a time to really fully understand and appreciate the word of God um, with which you can then defend and attack uh, Satan. If you want to survive the battle, then you have to know how to handle your sword. Using a sword is something that takes time and practice and effort. Many years ago, in the, I was in the Dorigo Dramatic Society and one day a friend of mine and I were ratting around in the props um, room and we found two swords that they had made for uh, some play and they were big, <laughs> big, big gigantic swords like that made out of, uh, out of real steel and, um, uh, and we sort of took them out onto the stage and big two-handed jobs and we sort of had a bit of a go at each other with these swords. We lasted about two minutes. 
and uh, it gave us appreciation of the strength the knights must have had when they were fought, fought with the big heavy swords. We could only keep it up for a couple of minutes. And um, so the, the practice would have been very important to them. Practice using your sword, practice the defensive and the offensive uh, moves to defeat the enemy. In order to use our sword, we must practice using it. And that means being in the word daily and knowing and understanding the Bible. Becoming familiar with the word of God, you're storing away spiritual weapons for the spirit to use. He will bring to your mind those passages which apply to the situation that you're in. Your mind will be trained to think like God thinks. And you're able to pierce through the lies and deceptions of the enemy. Jesus thoroughly knew the word of God and he was able to defend and attack the devil out in the wilderness in the 40 days when he was being tempted. And he used the scriptures on every occasion to attack and to repel his enemy. Verse 18 finishes up there and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. And perhaps most importantly, when we face the blank wall, don't forget to keep on praying. Heman sings in the midst of a tough time and he keeps praying even through the most miserable, bleak circumstances. When your child or perhaps your grandchild, as it happened to me yesterday, I went and visited my son and my two three-year-old grandchildren came and descended on me and the dog <laughs> and uh, and there was, Grand Gaga, come see this, come see that. And we went up to the, had to go up to the bedroom and read a book and look at the latest treasures and the latest cupboard that had been built for them. They're so persistent. Gaga. Gaga, Gaga, Gaga. <laughs> How much more should we persist with our good, good Father? And so in all this, be honest with God. And this psalm is that, no doubt. Despair is not offensive to our Father. Longing is not offensive to him. Worries are something that he will take care of. As we take communion in a few minutes, I invite you to draw comfort and strength from Jesus. Strength that will enable you to move on into the next week and beyond, maybe not with all the answers, but with enough to, to stand. And who knows, we might even move forward. Amen.